This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, and welcome to it. Uh, glad to have you aboard today once again for the uh, the program and the festivities and the rewind and the preview. Uh, and also the news and the latest news from around the hockey world. And we'll do more on this over the course of the program today is the passing of Peter Klima. Uh, now, Peter Klima was a troubled athlete at times. Peter Klima was an elite athlete at times. I can remember... You know, a little 14, 15-year-old Jeffy getting all excited because Peter Klima was uh, coming to North America, going to play for the Detroit Red Wings. This is back in the era where players, um, uh, uh, players, uh, European players, specifically Soviet players, Russian players, uh, Czech players, etc., you didn't see them. They didn't come over. You saw them at World Championships. You saw them at the Olympics. Uh, you saw them on uh, barnstorming tours, uh, etc., but you never saw them mix with NHLers. And Peter Klima was interesting because, uh, and it was Jim Lights, more on him in a couple of moments. Peter Klima was the first Czechoslovakian player to defect uh, to play in the NHL and defected to an American team. Now, previous in the 70s, uh, a couple of players, most notably Vaslav Natamansky, uh, who's in the Hockey Hall of Fame, defected to Toronto to play with the Toros, Richard Farda, um, who history seems to have forgotten. Um, but Richard Farda as well was another uh, Czech hockey player who defected uh, and ended up playing the Toronto Tours of the WHA. It was a much safer landing pad uh, going to Canada than the United States, but it was Jim Lights, uh, along with Nick Polano of uh, the Detroit Red Wings. Jim was a senior executive there uh, who helped uh, Peter Klima defect and got him to North America and got him uh, to Detroit. Jim is now the CEO. He's been with the Dallas Stars for a long time. The CEO of the Dallas Stars um, sidebar they're playing tonight. So I'm going to talk plenty today about Peter Klima at various times. i got a bunch of people that have sent in memories of Peter Klima. A lot of them revolve around uh, Game 1, 1990, Edmonton Oilers, Boston Bruins, John Muckler, famously, who uh, at times was, you know, uh, had Peter Klima both in and out of the doghouse, more in the doghouse and out of the doghouse. I think anyone who watched that game, or if you know the story, Klima sat and sat and sat and sat. John Muckler nailed him to the bench. Klima did not see the ice at all. I'm not sure what the transgression was exactly, um, something maybe Craig Simpson can answer. Craig would have been a teammate uh, of Peter Klima on that, that Stanley Cup winning team and threw him out there in the, in triple overtime. I guess everybody else, you know, look up and down the bench and, you know, everybody's got their tongues hanging out and your team is exhausted. And even though Muckler probably didn't want to put Klima out there, he did. And Klima responds with the triple overtime winner and what has been and still stands as the longest overtime in the Stanley Cup final. Um, so we'll talk about Klima a whole bunch today. By the way, Klima was, as much as people might focus on a lot of the off-ice um, behaviors and the drinking um, and, you know, how much of a, you know, larger-than-life party personality Peter Klima um, kind of turned into and, and maybe always was, um, Peter Klima was like a, a supremely gifted player, specifically a supremely gifted skater. That guy could absolutely fly um, and had a great sense of humor as well. I know officials liked them. I know teammates did as well. Um, I tweeted out one of his commercials when he was playing with the Detroit Red Wings uh, for Werner's Pop. 
um, the spicy ginger ale, as I like to always call it, and it's it's hilarious. Maybe if we get a chance a little bit later on, we'll we'll play it. Um, what I love about it is at the end he does the Michigan hand thing, and if you know what the Michigan hand thing is, if you look at your hand, it really is the state of Michigan. Although some people look at it and say, no, Michigan actually looks like a kitten, and people from Michigan because they've always been trained to do so. And, you know, I grew up and half my family and plenty of them still are lived in Livonia. So I spent a lot of time at the old Joe Lewis and a lot of time in Michigan. Um, they just do the hand thing. Where are you from? And they hold up their hand and they point to where they're at uh, on their hand, where they're from on their hand. And at the end of the Verner's commercial, Peter Klima puts up his hand and points to where he lives and the interpreter moves his finger. It's a really nice, brilliant Michigan touch. Condolences to the uh, the Klima family. So a couple of things. So last night, the Carolina Hurricanes draw first blood. 5-1 to one is the final score. This game was really over in the first period where the New Jersey Devils could only muster one shot. And that was it. But I'm not worried about New Jersey. More on that in a moment. The Edmonton Oilers, or should we say Leon Dreisaitl, proves that four goals is a curse. Now, if it happens three times, then we really have something. Uh, this is a couple of days after Joe Pavelski, uh, one day after really, Joe Pavelski scores four goals and Dallas loses to Seattle. Leon Dreisaitl scores four goals and Edmonton loses to the Vegas Golden Knights 6-4. Yesterday, Ivan Barbashev. Remember we talked about this quiet moves around trade deadline that are really going to pay off when we talked about Barbashev specifically? And so that one could be a big one for the Vegas Golden Knights. Barbashev was excellent last night for Vegas. They win by a final score of 6-4. to four. And part of the, you look for the poetic moments and all of this, and I know it's an empty netter, um, but Jack Eichel stripping Connor McDavid of the puck and scoring, that's not lost on a lot of people. See 2015 NHL draft Eichel and Connor McDavid. McDavid goes first, and Jack Eichel goes second. So Vegas draws first, but in that series... I'm not concerned about the Oilers. I'm not concerned about the Devils. I'm not concerned about the Oilers, just as I'm not concerned about the Maple Leafs. Although as game time approaches, you know, you can start to see it. If you want to sort of stick a thermometer into Toronto Maple Leafs Twitter, you might get the sense that there's some anxious people out there, let's just say, about their Maple Leafs. Once the thought of dropping two at home really finds a home with you, Maple Leafs fans tend to get... Mm, let's just say uncomfortable. But I don't worry about the Toronto Maple Leafs here. By the way, Sam Lafferty in. Uh, Zach Aston-Reese is out. Uh, and a programming note, Elliot Friedman joins me in the second hour of today's program. He's at the skate today. Um, no confirmation whether he's skating with the Maple Leafs extras, although there are reports that he was out there with Zach Aston-Reese. Uh, also tonight, the Dallas Stars face off against the Seattle Kraken. Um, the Dallas Stars lose game one to the Seattle Kraken, who have this, you know, balanced attack. Uh, we've made a lot about that. We've talked a lot about their blue line. We've talked about Philip Grubauer, who wasn't exactly great in game one, but did what he had to do. Um, I don't worry about the Dallas Stars either at this point. Like, there's been nothing. Like, now that we've seen all the teams in action here in the second round, there's been nothing really outside of New Jersey's first period last night which gives you cause for concern or cause for pause or a reason to look at the New Jersey Devils 
and say, yeah, they can't do this. Because periods two and three, we started to see what the New Jersey Devils are more all about, but the damage was already done. I mean, it's it's 3 nothing. Akira Schmid allows three goals on 11 shots, and he gets a hook, and in comes Vanacek. Um, things settle down. Things get different uh, for the New Jersey Devils. I don't worry about them, just like I don't worry about the Edmonton Oilers. You know, um, this is this is a matter of when you look at Edmonton's game. First of all, as always, full marks to the Vegas Golden Knights. Earned it, deserved it, all of it. Um, but those were a lot of there was a lot of shoot yourself in the foot moments for the Oilers last night. You know, bad turnovers, lazy back checks, missed assignments. Like a, a lot of the stuff that we saw yesterday from Edmonton is really and make up a word here, was really clean upable, right? These are things that Jay Woodcroft and his team can clean up easy. So if I'm Edmonton, I'm not concerned about that. We'll get into these two games and preview the other two games um, around the NHL uh, a little bit later on. In the meantime, Matty Marchese is aboard with me. Matty, you might have been too young um, to remember Peter Klima. Correct me if I'm wrong on this one, though. Uh, do you have any recollections of Peter Klima, or do you have any curiosities about the uh, the late Peter Klima, who's passed away at the age of 58. Anything about Klima to you? Does that does that name resonate with you, my young hockey fan friend? So, so I was a little bit. I mean, I would have caught the absolute tail end of his career. Um, but I always remember the he was bouncing around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he went. You know, the Kings great. and the Penguins and back to the Oilers and the Lightning yeah. and da 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 da. But yeah, he. Um, it's always the helmet. It's always the helmet. Actually, Jamie Campbell, our, our pal and colleague at Sportsnet, yep. tweeted out a picture of a stick he got from Peter Klima at Maple Leaf Gardens in the 80s. So it was a game no use stick, I guess. Yeah, so Jamie's got it on his uh, on his Twitter, and it's brilliant. It's got, you know, the, the signature tape job and, and all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Uh, it's a coho. Um, 19, he says November 16, 1986 is when he got it at Maple Leaf Gardens from Peter Klima. And it's signed and everything, so pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Look at that old coho with the fiberglass. Oh, yeah. November 16th, nice, little, nice little banana curve that on was... it, too. Oh, yeah. Look at that hook. And he's got the flat toe, too. Very nice. Good for board play. Um, you know, that's interesting because that would have been right in like that was in those are the those were the old uh, Norris division days that Peter Kleeman played in. And, you know, Peter Kleeman, I'll just be blunt about it. Peter Kleeman and Bob Probert were very good friends and were very close on that Detroit Red Wings team. Make of that what you will. And there are some obvious things you should you might want to make about that. Um, but those were man, those were the times where. Those games, like when it was Norris Division versus Norris Division teams, like the Maple Leafs and the Red Wings or the Minnesota North Stars against the St. Louis Blues or the Chicago Blackhawks against the St. Louis Blues, that was like the, um, uh, the, uh, the epitome of, you know, guerrilla hockey. Like those were four-hour games. Everybody had two, three, four sluggers, and everybody just kept adding up, you know, John Brophy teams versus Jacques Demers teams, you know, Brian Sutter teams, like really, really tough squads. And I mean, every team had, you know, their their share of skilled athletes as well. And I remember Peter Klima joining the Detroit Red Wings. Um, nineteen uh, would have been eighty, would have been eighty-six or eighty-five when he would have joined the Detroit Red Wings. And right away, eighty-five, eighty-six. Yep. Is just how fast this guy is. Eighty-five, eighty-six. Yeah, just the the, the first thing you notice is uh, just how fast the guy is. But yeah, you you notice the bucket. Uh, and then when he took the bucket off, you noticed the glorious mullets. You know, before there was the Yarmir Yager, as we used to call it, 
um, back in high school. Yaromir Yager and the Czechoslovakian crown of glory is what we used to call the hockey mullet. It was the, uh, the crown of glory, the Czechoslovakian crown of glory. There was the Peter Klima mullet. Like for everyone that thinks like, you know, the, uh, the mullet was the exclusive domain of Yager and he was the first and he popularized it. No, nah, man, Peter Klima was doing that years uh, before Yager made it to, uh, to North America. And uh, you do notice the helmet. Uh, you notice the sticks. You notice the speed. Had a great smile, great personality. Would drive coaches crazy. Whether it was Harry Neal with Detroit, whether it was the aforementioned John Muckler uh, with the Edmonton Oilers, uh, that is a great. I'm gonna retweet. I'm gonna throw Jamie that retweet on that one. That's a beauty. Look at that, Jamie Campbell. Look at that coho. Anyway, um, I don't want to digress too much because there's you know a lot of playoff games and other issues we got to talk about here. But uh, over the course of the next hour and 45 minutes here, I'm sure we'll we'll sprinkle in more love uh, about Peter Klima. As a matter of fact. A couple of tweets that I got after I threw it out there. Todd Chirac, uh, who's our um, very mm-hmm. good friend. Todd is, you know, the VP, senior VP of communications for the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, he sends in, was a massive Oilers fan at that time. Remember this game like it was yesterday. That was a 1990 game one, uh, Edmonton versus Boston Bruins. Very sad news indeed. Also... I, I got to find it. Uh, I'll, I'll go back and find it. There's a few people that have sent in some, some really interesting memories of uh, uh, Peter Klima. Anyway, um, condolences to the Klima family. Peter Klima passes away at age 58. Uh, your thoughts on what we saw last night? And my main takeaway from a lot of this was, same as the first day of the playoffs in round two, I, I can't, I'm not worried about any of the teams that lost. Like, I'm not at all. Like, I'm not worried about the Maple Leafs. I'm not worried about the Dallas Stars. Last night, outside of the first period, I don't worry about the New Jersey Devils because they course-corrected by the time the game was over, albeit they lost in kind of spectacular fashion. That first period really starched them. Um, And I don't worry about the Edmonton Oilers because all of those mistakes that Edmonton seemed to make, and I think Jay Woodcroft mentioned this in the post-game as well, those are all correctable mistakes. It wasn't as if Vegas skated all over them and was like, oh, man, what are they going to do here now? Wow, they're way overmatched. These are all like mental lapses, missed assignments, lazy back checks, bad turnovers. I don't worry about any of these teams, do you? No, and it's funny that you mentioned that because, and this is not a slight against any of the teams that won their game one matchup, but I feel like in all four of the games, the teams that lost really beat themselves. Like it wasn't, and again, it's not that the other team didn't play well enough to win, but I thought the the mistakes in each one of those games for the losing teams were so egregious, and it's stuff that we don't necessarily expect from those teams. Like New Jersey getting one shot in the first period is so unlike New Jersey, it's yeah. it's not funny. Um, I thought the Leafs really beat themselves in game. I thought the Oilers really beat themselves. You know, taking you know a late penalty and. It's just like there's lots of little things that go into the game that I that's I agree with you. I'm not worried. Now, for example, if the Toronto Maple Leafs go down 2-0 at home and got to go to Florida for games <laughs> three and four, I mean, that's a different conversation. Yeah. But I'm not I'm not ready to have that yet. How Maple Leafs would that be, though, Maddie? Oh, my God. How Maple Leafs would that be to have them go down to Cobb going into the weekend? It would be exactly the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like, the the fan base can't handle it. Their heart can't handle going down 2-0 to the Panthers, who I think most Leaf fans, if you gave them the truth serum, even if you didn't, they'd still say the same thing. 
they believe that they are better than the Florida Panthers. I believe that that is the case as well. I think they have better depth, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. When you're in the playoffs, game by game, like anything can happen. We've seen it. I don't think anybody had Florida beating Boston, and I don't think too many people had Seattle beating the Colorado Avalanche. Although, shout out Sam Cosentino, because I'm pretty sure that he picked the Kraken in seven, so way to go, Sam. Um, but it's just... Mm. Yeah, going down 2 nothing to Florida, the way that they're playing right now, and the one thing that I, I go back to, and I said it on the the you know fan morning show this morning here in Toronto, I'm waiting for Sergei Bobrovsky uh, to turn back into a pumpkin. <laughs> you don't want you don't want Columbus Tampa Bobrovsky anymore? Have you ever no. seen enough now? No, nobody needs that negativity in their life in this city. Nobody needs that. Yeah, he looks good. He, he looks really good. Um, okay, to the Oilers game against the uh, the Vegas Golden Knights and Jason Bruff from the morning show uh, on, our, on our station in Vancouver. Um, with the tweet of the night, did you see Bruff's tweet last night? No, I didn't. It's a good one. Here we go. Uh, if you can score four goals in a game, then you can score five. Dreisaitl came up short, and we shouldn't let him off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did I say to you before the show started? Like, if a guy score, if a guy scores three, do you sit him down the rest of the night? Like this, like two, two is a coincidence. Three is a trend. If this happens tonight, I think coach is going to go. You know what? You yeah. can't, we can't let you out there to score four. I'm sorry, you can't do that. Yeah, just sit, sit him down. Like nail him to the bench, like Muckler style with Peter Klima in 1990. You nail him to the bench after the hat trick. Like, all right, we can't have you scoring four because that seems to be the disaster number here. Um, listen, uh, Jay Woodcroft went out of his way to praise Leon Dreisaitl last night, and why not? And I, I threw this out last night on Twitter, too, and I, and I mean it legitimately. And there are other like there are other players who have been able to do this. Hello, Sidney Crosby. Hello, Connor McDavid. And I'm talking about doing it with consistency. I don't know. Joe Thornton's another one, actually, now that I think about it. I don't know if there's another player that I've seen, maybe in the history of hockey. No, probably in the history of hockey. No, absolutely in the history of hockey. Who scores more goals either along the goal from along the goal line or behind the goal line. Like the impossible angle. Like capital I impossible angle. Like you are not supposed to score there. And I know that there is a history, you know, with a certain Oilers player setting up behind the net, right? The Gretzky office, everything is behind the net. The new Oiler playing behind the goal line is Leon Dreisaitl, and he's scoring for there. Where Gretzky looked for passing lanes from behind the net, you know, that was the office. You know, one of the great things, and I always count my privileges, like I'm in a really privileged spot that I can have these conversations with people, but I remember having a long conversation with Adam Oates about about what Wayne Gretzky was actually doing behind the net. Like Adam Oates always has, always had, and still has, this ability to place himself in another player's brain as they process information. It's one of the most unique things about Adam Oates. He's, to me, he's one of the most fascinating people uh, in the entire hockey universe. And I remember having a conversation with him about Gretzky and just sat there and talked to me. And we, we walked through one video of Gretzky behind the net and what he's thinking at every single moment and what he's doing with his skates and what he's doing with his shoulders and what he's doing with his eyes. And to hear someone like Oates explain it is fascinating, right? But he's looking for lanes. He's looking for for openings. Trisettle's looking for ways to score, and he's looking for ways to use players as decoys to draw goaltenders off the post. You know, he's one of these guys, you know, next time we have Kevin Woodley on, 
um, should really talk about um, goaltenders getting lured out of position by Leon Dreisaitl. So he lures goalies off the post somehow, and he finds ways to score. And yesterday he did, you know, banking it off Brossois. We've seen it before. That is not accidental, folks. That is not just a hope shot. That is a very deliberate play because we've seen it numerous times from Leon Dreisaitl. No one, Maddie. apologies, Sidney Crosby, no one does it better than Leon Dreisaitl. Agree, disagree. Agree. Uh, and when you said Oilers setting up behind the net, uh, I thought for sure you were talking about Steve Smith. Um, so with the oh, dry side of this, why you got it? It's been so long. Let it go. You know what the problem? Hang on. One thing. One thing on that. Okay. Uh, hang on a second here. Look what I've done. I've been trying. Hang on. I've been trying to make this point my entire professional life. Steve Smith. Okay. Who I believe that year in Calgary was voted Calgary's favorite athlete. Oh, that's By the good. way, just let that one sink in, okay? So Steve Smith has worn that for the longest time, okay? Oh, you messed up the dynasty, the consecutive uh, cup streak, you know, it was going to go Habs and then Islanders and the Oilers were going to rip off, you know, four or five in a row and Steve Smith ruined it, blah, 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 blah. You know who's at fault for that play? Who's that? Grant Fuhrer. Yes. Grant Fuhrer at that at that moment needs to be behind, needs to be uh, like right along the right along the goal line. He can't be out uh, like near the top of his crease where he where he what where he is or else things like that are going to happen. That is a complete lack of communication between the goaltender and the defenseman. And as much as people want to pin that play on Steve Smith, I get it. It's the obvious one you look at and you go, "Oh, way to go, dummy. Way to wreck the Oilers. Haha, you broke the dynasty." Uh, there's a goaltender that's got to wear some of that too. That is not just Steve Smith. If we're I wasn't... playing the blame game, let's share it a little bit here because somehow, somehow Grant Fuhrer has totally skated when the Steve Smith conversation comes up. No one mentions where Grant was in the crease at that point. I just, I just thought it was a great play. It was a great bank shot, Jeff. <laughs> it's, it's like Leon last that, but that Leon last night. Like, you know what the best? Bad. <laughs> I know. So I it was, I was saying it very tongue in cheek. <laughs> I feel that I would melt in that moment exactly like Steve Smith did. Um, but, but the the thing with the dry settle goal is what's super fascinating about it is a lot of guys in that moment would shoot it a lot harder than he did. Like, that was basically a very light saucer pass that went off of Brussois' head and into the net or neck or whatever it was. I just, I'm watching him going, like, he put, it was almost as if it was like a joke. Like, ah, here we go. Let me try this. Ooh, a little soft, uh, soft saucer pass (laughs) off his head. I thought that was super interesting because usually guys will try and fire it a little bit harder to catch the goalie off guard. I mean, from that angle, it's kind of hard to do, but it was. That's yeah. one of the greatest goals that I've ever seen, and I'm not try- and I'm not underselling it. I don't think. Here's what I'm curious about, and goalies listening or watching right now can can fill me in on Twitter. Just like hit me with a with a DM or just um, just just uh, just uh, just tweet it to me. For a goaltender, would you rather allow? Okay, let's make a list here. If you're a goalie, would you rather allow a goal five hole? Would you rather allow a goal that is oh oh Michigan or from 
behind the red line. Or how about now sure, a wraparound? There? A wraparound, like a low wraparound. Well, that's what it... Um, listen, hang on. No, I'm don't, no that's a high wraparound. The, I'm talking the about Michigan, a low wraparound. The Michigan is... The Michigan is just a high wrap. That's it. Just a high wrap around. Low wrap around. People worse. like to create, make, try, try to make this mystique like it's something special. Guys, it's a wrap around. The low wrap around is worse. It's, it's a wrap around. You think low wrap around is worse than the Michigan? Yeah, because they cover so much of the bottom of the you net know, with okay. their butterfly style. So I think it's, I think, I think it's actually harder to. Okay, this is going to sound really stupid, but whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to go with it. I think it's harder to score right. on a regular wraparound than a Michigan only because the goalies cover all of the bottom of the net when the puck is behind yeah, the goal line, generally speaking. Generally true. Um, and something that just dawned on me, do we need a new name now for the low wraparound? If the high wraparound is a Michigan, what's the appropriate state? For the low wraparound. It's called the it's called the NHL ninety four because at some points that was the only way you could score in that damn video game. <laughs> or the NHL oh, ninety three, whichever here. one you want. <laughs> I just got a text from Greg Millen. Easy, dumb question. None of the above. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually really that I like that. Millsy's on the ball. He's right. You don't want to get scored on any which way. I get it. It makes sense. Five hole Michigan are behind the goal line. All right. One of these days we'll throw out the, um, what do you call the low wraparound, if the high wraparound is the Michigan. People are more creative than us, Matty. They'll come up with it. You know, I was always taught in my, at the beginning of my career, don't let your audience write your punchlines. Have you met Twitter? It's all Twitter does Honestly. is write punchlines. It's awesome. I'm trying to figure uh, out who would have okay, been really so adept about... at that. Like the low wraparound goal. Who is really good at that? There's not really one guy that who kind of stands out. low wrap? You know who always kind of did for me, and and it it, um, it it speaks to the skating style which we see now that every kid does, and that's uh, Ulf Dallin. Because you know what Ulf Dallin did, and I think he was first to do it in the NHL. Someone out there uh-huh. will correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, ten and two. Like yeah. whenever I think, whenever I hear the name, whenever I think of Ulf Dallin, I think like, okay, he was a guy. Now everybody does it, right? Like Jeff just, you know, Skinner takes it to a new popularity. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of players, obviously, I mean, everybody knows how, everyone should know how to do it. By the time you get to the NHL, by the time you get to, to AAA hockey, you should be able to do that both ways. But he was the first. I remember watching him, you know, just coming around, coming around the net with his feet at 10 and two wide open, trying to wrap it. Yeah. Um, do you, uh, since we're talking about interesting things, we have a couple minutes. Do you want to do the, uh, the Dallas Aikens thing from last night? This is really good. Yeah, let's do this. So um, round one on Hockey Night, uh, Derek Lalone uh, was a special guest uh, of the panel. Now he's off to the World Championships uh, on the bench for Team USA. And as I said when he left, good luck bringing home that silver. Go get him. Um, and this year, uh, this round of the playoffs, Dallas Aikens, uh, now former coach of the Anaheim Ducks, is aboard and doing like some really – like I love having coaches on panels – like, I love talking to coaches. I love talking to um, officials uh, as well. I don't think we do enough with them, but nonetheless, it's for another conversation. But Dallas is really good. And there was something that, Maddie that I know you really got excited about, his, his discussion about board play and where the puck goes. This is a couple of minutes here. This is Dallas Aikens on the panel last night talking about play around the boards. Have a listen. 
the, the power play is one thing, but along the boards is something you've been talking about as we're watching the game. What is it about along the boards that's so important? Yeah, well, it's amazing. When I when I brought it up to to these guys, they've they've been watching the game a little bit differently. And in, in an NHL hockey game, 80 percent of the puck time mm -hmm. is just within three feet of the wall. And so you can see in these shifts here, it's on the wall, it's on the wall, it's on the wall. So for all you coaches out there, especially kids coaches, um, you want to put in a lot of wall work into your practices. Like the, this puck is constantly there. And if you're a gr really good wall player, it allows you to get it off the wall and into the good ice, which is that good ice is in between the dots. And that's where all the chances come through. You just see a little play uh, off the wall there that uh, creates a good breakout, sets up into some really good ozone time. So if, when you watch the game, watch how much that puck is within three feet of the wall. It's incredible. It's amazing stat. 80% of the time, you think about centermen, right? Like 80%. Centermen sometimes neglect wall play, mm. but you got to think about 80% of the time the puck's there, so you got to be good at that part of the game. Did you ask someone to track that for you? Uh, no, it got handed to me. Like that's a great thing about being a coach. Mm -hmm. uh, your, your analytics departments, people, other people you know in the league and that you trust, uh, it gets handed to you, and it's highly, highly valuable. I don't want to put you on the spot here. I should have asked you this beforehand, but give us an example of maybe an underrated great wall player that maybe we wouldn't think of. Wow, uh, underrated. Well, 15. if you watch the game here uh, uh, tonight, I, I think Kane is really good on the mm -hmm. walls. He's big, he's strong, he's able to protect it, and he's got good enough mitts to make those little plays. And it's those wingers. Those, when those pucks come around the wall, those D are pinching down hard, they're under pressure, and they've got to make that little three-foot play to a centerman who's in motion, and it's got to be on the tape. And it's a, I, I think it's one of the hardest things to do in the mm -hmm. game. And uh, there, there's some wingers in this league that are just incredible at it. That's some great stuff, specifically for uh, for, for minor hockey coaches, stateside youth hockey coaches, um, getting players used to playing along the boards and making plays. And I'll tell you what, you know, one of, in this generation, one of the best, and it really like it was like every single night when he was on the Islanders, um, one of the best board players, I think, is in the game right now, and Dallas Akins mentions Evander Kane, I think John Tavares, you know, more so maybe specifically when he was playing with the New York Islanders, where it really, where it was like every single night, he was such a, a, a beast along the boards. Um, I'll throw John Tavares into that conversation, but maybe the most of the last, geez, Maddie, 25 years, maybe the best board player that we've seen, Ryan Smith of the Edmonton Oilers when he was with the Oilers. Like, did you ever, like, how often did you ever see Ryan Smith lose a board battle? Like, never, right? He had that big old ugly stick. Whoa. And the great mullet and just, like, worked his ass off around the boards. Um, really underrated skill, board play. But that is a fascinating stat. 80% um, uh, of the game is played within three feet of the wall. That is a fascinating number. We don't even need to flood the middle of the ice. Just flood it around the boards. Um, I wonder where Dallas picked that one up, and I wonder if that stat was handed to him or that bit of information was handed to him when he was with the Edmonton Oilers and Tyler Dello was, was handling the, uh, the analytics for that team. And now Tyler is, along with Matt Cain, doing the same with the New Jersey Devils. Okay, a couple of things before I get to break here. Uh, Dave Payne about the, the low Michigan uh, Low Michigan should be called the South Dakota. 
It's flat, and you don't want to go there. Okay, well, there's a little <laughs> shot there from, from Dave Payne. Uh, Robert Pugsley reminds us, yesterday was the anniversary of Doug Gilmore's double wraparound goal. Uh, Le Petit Viking, a uh, nice little Matt Snazlin reference there, who was the first player to do the wraparound. Denny Savard would, not that I'm old enough to know the first, though. And here you go. Here you go for this one. We'll go to break on this one. Pat myself on the back. From Mitchell Blair on Twitter, at Jeff Merrick. Thank you for saying what I've said for years about the Steve Smith goal. More Fuhrer's fault than Smith. No communication and Fuhrer had to be in his net and not at the top of the crease. I think it's catching on, Maddie. I think more and more people are realizing and are coming out of the woodwork on your... You just thought it was a glib reference you were going to throw out there and take a cheap shot at Steve Smith. Little did you know this was going to turn into the uh, Bash Grant Fuhrer hour as the tweets continue to come in. Uh, coming up on the show today, Elliot's going to drop by to kick off Hour 2. He was at the skate this morning. Uh, so Elliot's coming up. Harner Ryan Singh joins us in a couple of moments from the NHL on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada, uh, along with Louis DeBrus calling the Edmonton Oilers Vegas Golden Knight Series. Uh, Steve Goldstein, Panthers play-by-play voice, still to come as well uh, in Hour 2. Uh, Panthers jumping out to a one nothing series lead against the Maple Leafs, looking to stretch that to 2 tonight. And before we let you go, want to remind you, a uh, big shout-out to our friends at Pizza Nova for hooking us up with lunch today. That's Amore Pizza for Kids is back at Pizza Nova. 50 cents from every dip purchased in May goes to the kids at Variety Ontario. And don't forget to add a dip to your next order and make a difference. I dip, you dip, hockey players dip. We all dip for a variety. Thanks to our friends at Pizza Nova. Merrick Show continues. Harner Ryan Singh is next across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Back in a moment. Breaking down the biggest trends in hockey. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, welcome back to the program. Still looking for the appropriate name for the low wraparound, if the high is the Michigan. South Dakota's already come in as one. Did I get another one here? Oh, someone. Where is it here? Someone just DM'd me. Frank, the low wraparound should be called the LaFontaine. I think Gilmore would apply there too. That's a good one. Um, okay, in the meantime, the uh, Vegas Golden Knights doing a job on the Edmonton Oilers last night. Although, if you listen to Jay Woodcroft, uh, Edmonton's head coach after the game, he'll tell you, we did a job on ourselves. All the mistakes are easily correctable. Harner Ryan Singh was there for all of it, uh, calling the game on Hockey Night in Canada, NHL on Sportsnet, and he joins me now. Harner Ryan, how are you today? I'm well on yourself, Jeff. Uh, I'm doing great. Um, interesting game last night, hey? Like, we looked at uh, the Dallas-Seattle game, and that was the Pavelski show with four goals, and then a night later, it's Leon Dreisaitl, uh with four different goals himself. Was, holy smokes, <laughs> just a, another remarkable display from, uh, from from Leon Dreisaitl. How did you look at yesterday's game, you know, and especially in light of what Jay Woodcroft talked about after, about, you know, self-inflicted wounds and correctable mistakes, etc.? Yeah, you know what? I mean, it's hard not to say that this wasn't a wasted performance for Leon Dreisaitl. I know Jay Woodcroft was asked about that, um, you know, as was 
uh, Dallas's team as well a night before, but it, it's it's just a, a Herculean performance from Dreisaitl. I mean, he's up to 11 goals already in seven playoff games. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, and, you know, his points per game average has been talked about for the playoffs. Only Wayne Gretzky um, has a better points per game average now uh, than Dreisaitl's in the history of the game and the playoffs. It's it's just remarkable. What we're seeing here is really special. But, uh, you know, Vegas outscoring Dreisaitl, no one else was able to get on the board for the Oilers. And Jay Woodcroft's completely right. The, the team, he said it himself. It's it, These are his words team wasn't anywhere near where it needed to be um and and Ekholm echoed that as well he, he said you know we gave them our b or c game and it's such a startling fact here jeff um and i'm not sure if you've already talked about this or not but seven straight game one losses for edmonton seven straight series they have lost game one in the playoffs this is all through the mcdavid dry era um, is do they need extra motivation to bring their A game? I mean, I asked Jay Woodcroft about this in the morning. I mean, it it does predate him, so he can't explain all of it. But what he yeah. did tell me is, you know, they're trying something different this time around. After winning the Los Angeles series, uh, they stayed in California. They spent some time in Santa Monica. They didn't go back to Edmonton. They tried to keep their focus on the next series. Um, it didn't work, but you know what's funny is Kevin Bieksa was on the team. Uh, it was Anaheim round two, April 26, 2017, when the Oilers last won uh, a game one. So our colleague over there, a little, uh, uh, you know, we, you can chirp him later there in Toronto when you run into him. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, a pretty, it's pretty fascinating that that's what the situation is for Edmonton. I do have full confidence, though, that, you know, Jay Woodcroft, he adjusts accordingly. Connor McDavid, after, you know, the series clinching victory against the Kings, gave Woodcroft so much credit um, for the game plan and for the adjustments, calling him one of the top three coaches in the NHL, a smart hockey man, the attention to detail. And so I, I, I'm confident that they'll come back, you know, strong. But it is pretty interesting that Edmonton and this, group of the core has had to deal with this over and over and over again. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. And I've always been of the belief because there, there, there's, there seems to be Harner Ryan, this sort of, this sort of idea that, you know, how you start either a game or a series is a reflection of the coach and the coaching staff and, you know, getting the team prepared. I, I don't buy that for a second. I think it's a responsibility of every single player to be prepared from the opening puck drop to be prepared to to play, whether it's an opening game uh, or it's a or it's you know the uh, the opening of a period. Like whenever we've seen you know like in New Jersey last night, like I don't think that that was anything to do with with Lindy Ruff how they only mustered one shot against the Carolina Hurricanes in the first period. To me, that's all on the players. Um, how you prepare is how you prepare. How you get ready is how you get ready. All of us, everyone listening, everybody watching, everybody prepares for their job, and that is your responsibility. The idea that as professionals, no matter what industry you're in, you know you need to rely on a win-one for the Gipper speech, um, to me is kind of folly. How, how do you feel about it? I'm, I'm strong that that's a, a player's issue, not a coach's issue. 
Yeah, I tend to agree with you because of the fact that as a coach and as a coaching staff, you're going into game one of a series with a ton of information, probably the most amount of information you're going to be feeding your players at any point in the series is you're going to be looking at what the, what the opponent did in the regular season. You're going to be looking at the previous playoff round. If it is indeed round two, three or four, um, and you're going to be watching all of their tendencies. Now what comes into play is, you know, if the, if the coaching staff wants to, confuse the opponent and in and kind of change up those mm-hmm. tendencies but what i think happened here is you know for the the difference in the pace of the game uh in game one against vegas in comparison to the pace of the game against the kings i mean it's not a one three one formation anymore this four check we have to give credit where credit's due i mean the vegas golden knights they, their forecheck and the way they play even strength, it, it, you know, they're a vastly superior team five on five. They were just clinical off the rush, you know, they, and the, and the transition game, like yeah. they converted Edmonton's yeah. mistakes into goals. It, it was just aggressive. Uh, and, and so, you know, the Oilers, they, they're the goals they allowed were preventable, uh, preventable. This is, this is brutal turnovers. This is decisions where, you know, you're making a, 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 a play where you, there's a safe play available for you or, you know, those types of things the Oilers really need to clean up. I think they will. Like this, listen, this, the reason why it's not so, so worrisome is because the Oilers hadn't lost a game in regulation since March 11th. And that's going back to a game against Toronto where they lost 7-4. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it was you know that they admittedly were loose there. They that's not how they like to play either, right? So this is they have cleaned it up. They 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 do know how to play a tighter game, but um, you know maybe uh, losing game one brings up the urgency, and and that's what uh, you know allows them to to come out and execute better. You know, one of the players alongside Harner Ryan Singh from Hockey Night in Canada and the NHL on Sportsnet. Um, one of the players that I really felt bad for last night was Vincent Dearnay. And, you know, tough turnover, yep. Barbashev scores. Uh, we remember how he was in the doghouse uh, in the first, uh, first round series against the Los Angeles Kings. You know, Elliot has talked about this a couple of different times in a couple of different spots. There was something that was, there was a trade that was presented to Edmonton. Um, and it ultimately didn't happen, obviously, because Jay Woodcroft, you know, in conversation with, uh, I'm assuming it would be Ken Holland, who else would it be, said, you know what, we can fix this problem internally. I don't know the player in question or players in question uh, that the the discussion was about, but Jay Woodcroft really, really went to bat and said, you know what, we don't need to make this move the answer that you're looking for is already in the organization. Um, and we all believe that he was referring to, to Vincent Dearnay, um, who we had in the American Hockey League and you know, helped bring up with the, uh, with the NHL Edmonton Oilers. It almost seems as if, and I don't think that Woodcroft or Manson would do this at the, the detriment of the rest of the team, but this organization is really uh, invested in Vincent Dearnay um, succeeding and and doing well, and I know that Woodcroft loves 
this guy and thinks he can do a, a lot of different things. And knowing how much he has the support of the coaching staff and how much, you know, trades may have been vetoed or nixed because they feel that he can do the job, that's got to be extra pressure for someone like Vincent DeHarnay. And then to have a, a game like that with a really tough turnover, I don't know if there's a question here, Harner Ryan, other than I feel really badly for the guy. How about you? Well, you know, uh, Jeff, the one the one uh, piece of information I can give you from Jay Woodcroft's perspective on DeHarnay is, is that although DeHarnay is a rookie, he's 26 years old. So he's a, he's a different type of rookie yeah. in terms of, you know his maturity in his in his career and in in his life, and and I think that's why yeah. Vincent Deharnay is the type of guy who's going to be able to bounce back from a gaff like he did yeah. uh, in game one, and he did in in round one as well. He had a game where um, you know he it was a rough go for him. He was on the ice for several goals, and then he was stapled to the bench for the rest of it. But what he brings. To the Oilers lineup is size and he's six foot six uh 215 pounds uh he brings sandpaper he brings muscle this is something the Oilers didn't have much of as much of uh before you know Ekholm arrived and and Deherney is he's such a fascinating story because you know it started off in the ECHL and a lot of time in the AHL and and, and you know I'm not sure he even knew if this was ever going to pan out uh, the guy had such bad luck that he was injured at training camp for more than one season. And his first NHL game didn't come until the month of January, you know, like it's, it's, and it's ever since he showed up in the lineup, he's, he's, he's been a part of it. I think he's a popular teammate as is a guy like Kyler Yamamoto, who, you know, uh, Jay Woodcroft called him the little engine that could. And I just, I just love that line. And, and you can tell even with, within the dressing room, um, how much the rest of the players they 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 love Yamamoto like he's the type of guy they root for and and they you know he's a popular yeah. line mate too even though the production isn't there so the Oilers have some of these unsung heroes Dayerne is one of those and and I think they'll continue to give him opportunities one because they need him and one because yeah you're right Woodcroft does really like him. <laughs> um, I got about 90 seconds left in this segment with you, Harner Ryan. Let's see if we can get in a quick conversation about Evan Bouchard. And it's been, I don't know, maybe Sheldon Surrey is the last. It's been a while since the Oilers have had a power play anchor at the point who can bomb the puck. You know, we're used to Edmonton's power play with Tyson Berry, and he was all about, you know, distribution, distribution, distribution. Wasn't a shooting threat. Everybody knew it, including goaltenders who would, you know, adjust accordingly. Now with Evan Bouchard, there is a legitimate shooting threat up top. And he says he's working more on on distributing the puck, etc. But we all look for moments where players... You know, it's like a you know, coming out party, debutante's ball for these guys. Are we seeing right now in these playoffs the coming out party for Evan Bouchard where by the end of the playoffs, wherever this finishes up for Edmonton, everybody's going to know just how good this guy is? It's just incredible. What a story. He had like a 
a middling start to the season, just six assists in the first 20 games. And then, yeah, just as soon as Tyson Varius shipped out and all of a sudden the pressure's on and Bouchard has been delivering and his name is being mentioned again and again with Paul Coffey in terms of all sorts of stats. I mean, when that's happening, then good things are happening. And yes, that Bouch bomb from the blue line, the Oilers have needed that desperately, <laughs> but I, I hope Bouchard is, I hope we see more Bouch bombs because the Oilers need that type of a strong uh, shot from the point. And, and I think that that adds yeah. a, an asset to the power play that Barry, you know, Barry had a strong shot too, but Bouchard, yeah, he's taken it to another level and he was tied with, McDavid for points in round one. Like this guy, this guy is really proving his yeah. worth. A great coming out party, like you mentioned. But like his line, his line mate, his defensive uh, uh, partner at home is saying, Bouchard is just scratching the surface here. So um, good on the Oilers for it. it was a gamble. It was a gamble that's paying off to to move on from Barry and elevate Bouchard and 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 have him be ready for this. And good on them for realizing that. He was going to be ready because uh, he is definitely, um, it's been exceptional what he's been able to pull off here. Paying off big time. Harner Ryan, always a delight catching up. Uh, great work, continued success. Uh, love hearing you and Louie on the call. Um, loved it last night. We look forward to game two uh, with the Vegas Golden Knights leading the series one nothing. Thanks as always, Harner Ryan. You be well, my friend. All right. I appreciate the love. Take care, Jeff. The great Hunter Ryan Singh from the NHL on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada, uh, calling the game with Louis DeBrusque, uh, Gene Principe, ringside. Um, four goals for Leon Dreisaitl. He is spectacular. Um, four goals for Joe Pavelski in Game 1 between Dallas and Seattle. And a pair of games tonight, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Florida Panthers. Uh, the Florida Panthers leading the series one nothing, And then later, um, it's Pavelski and the Dallas Stars facing off against the Seattle Kraken. And, you know, the question is, you're Pete DeBoer. What do you do with Joe Pavelski? I'm sure the temptation is there to put him up on the top line again. Who, when they're firing to the top line in the NHL, period... But game one, he looked real good with Max Domi and Mason Marchman. Did he not? Maybe you hold that change back for maybe a mid-game switch. You got to pick up this conversation with Elliot here at the after the top of the hour break. You're Peter DeBoer. If you're going to make the switch, do you make it at the start of the game? Or do you wait and see how Seattle adjusts? Or rather, force Seattle to adjust. One of the sidebars here, one of the games within a game. We'll talk to Elliot Friedman in moments. Steve Goldstein, Panthers play-by-play voice as well. Plenty to get to. Glad you're aboard. More of the Merrick Show in moments. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, so a couple of things here really quickly. Kevin Woodley will be on the program tomorrow uh, from In Goal Magazine and also NHL.com to talk about the reverse VH on other things like Michigan's or reverse VH specifically uh, in the Vegas-Edmonton game, uh, the Leon Dreisettle goal. Uh, the first one that he scored, the uh, the bank it off the helmet goal. 
uh, by Drysaddle. And we'll probably get into all other goaltending issues around the NHL. Uh, you know what we should probably do with him, now that I think about it? Um, we have eight teams left. Let's do eight goaltenders. How about that? So your Jake Ottingers and your Philip Grubauers probably should probably park some time talking about Akira Schmid, uh, who was yanked after surrendering three on 11 shots yesterday uh, by the New Jersey Devils. I don't think for a second he's not going to start game two, but nonetheless, we'll see. And another goaltender we should probably talk about um, uh, with Kevin tomorrow is Sergei Bobrovsky, who has been nothing short of outstanding for the Florida Panthers. Speaking of the Cats, uh, their play-by-play voice, Steve Goldstein, joins me now in advance of Game 2. Steve, how are you today? I was just talking to uh, to Elliot Friedman a second ago and said uh, you looked uh, as close to perfect as possible. Great tan, great suit, everything around the rink, great smile, everything's coming up Panther, everything's coming up Steve these days. I'm, I'm guessing you're in a pretty good spot right about now, Steve. You know, Jeff, I'm only happy when I see Elliot. So that's why he thinks I was so happy, because I actually saw him. <laughs> An actual Elliot Friedman sighting. There he was. I turned around, but there he was, gone. There um, he was, literally on the steps, inside the arena, 100%. <laughs> Um, so, you know, just mentioning Sergey Bobrovsky there a second ago, and, you know, Kevin Woolley's got a little, Kevin Woolley has a breakdown, NHL.com right now, of the uh, of the remaining goaltenders in the, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And uh, I got to tell you, you know, the, the command performance when we hear the name Sergey Bobrovsky is the series, you know, Columbus against Tampa. And I think one of the greatest non-goalie changes probably in the history of the game is after that first period when John Tortorella and I think a lot of it was at the urging of Sergei Bobrovsky left Bobrovsky in for periods two and three of that game one and it ended up being a Columbus sweep shocking uh, the entire hockey world not just everybody in Tampa but what are we seeing and what are you seeing right now out of Sergei Bobrovsky well it's been Jeff a crazy year for him you know Season starts, you've got Spencer Knight, they're sharing the net at one point, late November, early December, look like, you know, they're going to run with Spencer for a little while. Um, He gets sick. Bobrovsky comes back in, plays really well for a stretch. Then he goes down. Alex Lyon comes in. This is in January. Then Bobrovsky plays 13 in a row and 16 out of 17 because they were desperate for wins. Lyon comes in again and carries them to the playoffs and then, you know, Bobrovsky finally gets his chance again. So it's been a wild ride. And I'll tell you this, game one the other night here in Toronto, that's the best game I've seen him play as a Panther. That He was just fantastic, especially when you consider the competition and the situation. And, yeah. you know, he's got to feel real good right now. You know, is there, and listen, you've watched and, and called so many of his games and, and watched him, you know, game in, game out, day in, game. Is there, a, is there a way you can tell whether he's dialed in or not? I know all goaltenders are a little bit fickle, but is there, like, Goldie, when you, when you watch him early, when you watch him in warm-up, I don't know, does it take a few shots? Like, are there any indications that you look at and say to yourself, yeah, you know what, Bob's really got it tonight. Bob's not letting anything by him. A hundred percent, Jeff, and it's early in the game. You know, and he did this in game seven in Boston. Uh, Coyle had that chance, you know, right off that left wing, right in front of the net. Obviously, the two power plays in game one the other night, he makes the saves. And you can tell when Sergei Bobrovsky is calm and he's quiet in the net and he's coming out top of the blue, meeting shots and just very calmly making the saves, you can tell that he's on that night. There have been games when he doesn't play well and – First shot of the game, you know, top of the circle, 
it, it, be, it, it just beats them clean. Um, and lately that has not been the case. So, yes, people that watch these games, you can tell pretty quickly if Bobrovsky's on top of his game. You know, there was, um, I think we've talked about this before, when Bill Zito took over the Florida Panthers, uh, there was the feeling and there was the belief that the Panthers had become too easy to play against. And I I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Zito's first move might have been to bring in Patrick Hornquist. I I think that might have been the the first move that he made as a a manager. And then other players came in. Sam Bennett, uh, nasty bit of business to play against. Radko Gudis, nasty bit of business to play against. And, you know, the, the master stroke uh, bringing in Matthew Kachuk who's just miserable uh, to play against when you look at this Florida Panthers pre and post Zito here uh, what comes to your mind because the first thing that I see the skill has always been there but now it's just a miserable team to play against Steve you hit it on the head I mean a hundred percent you know I think teams always looked at it when they came down to South Florida is okay we got a tough one over in Tampa and then you know we may not win the game but it's not going to be a miserable, great adjective you use, experience to be on the ice against them. And Hornquist changed the whole thing around when he walked into the door, just the work ethic and everything he brings to the table. And then, as you mentioned, slowly, you know, you go out and you get Sam Bennett. Um, A lot of people may not have thought that Sam Bennett had that in him to be a second-line center. Obviously, he does. You bring in Ryan Lomberg. No one knew about him. Zito said, hey, you're all going to love this guy. Most people hadn't heard of Ryan Lomberg, especially in the States. Um, and then you just continue that along with, with, with Ratko Gudis and even this year bringing in Nick Cousins. And Kachuk is the ultimate. Yep. Matthew Kachuk's changed the whole thing. He's changed the whole dynamic. This team the last couple of years before him had had some swagger. You know, they had that, that edge about him a little bit, Jeff. But he has come in mm-hmm. and he has just taken it to a whole other level and everybody's kind of followed suit and, and playing ahead. You even have a kid like Anton Lundell now, a very difficult player to play against in the middle on the third line. Yeah. Let, let, let's park some time here and talk about um, about Matthew Kachuk. Now, the entire Kachuk family is, this is fertile ground for sports talk radio. I mean, the, the Kachuks are the gift that just, you know, keeps on giving and giving and giving. And, you know, Matthew Kachuk driving the Boston Bruins to distraction. And you saw that on the, the, the Brandon Montour, um, you know, game-tying goal where Swayman can't help but taking the poke at Matthew Kachuk and it puts him out of position. He's not set. He doesn't have, he's not square to the shooter. And we're off to overtime here. Um, we know what he does on the ice. And I think there's a strong possibility, like a really strong possibility. He wins the real heart race, which is second place. McDavid's winning this whole thing. The only chase here and only race here is who's going to be the runner up. I don't think anybody Mm -hmm. will be surprised if Matthew Kachuk ends up the runner up uh, for the heart trophy. Um, but you watch game in and game out and day in and day out and you know, the habits and you know, the, you know, the, the background with the Kachuk family. What do you see in Matthew Kachuk? Because when I look at him, I see a skilled player. I see a rough player. I see a nasty player. I see a highly intelligent player here. And when you look at how he's always handled himself off the ice this goes all the way back to to dad. This is a guy who understands the game, both on the ice and off of it. Well, class person off of it, I can tell you that, Jeff. He treats, you know, he treats the support staff, and you can throw broadcasters in there like myself, the same way he would teach, you know, treat a teammate. He is a fantastic Mm -hmm. guy off the ice. He is always upbeat. Um, 
And I know he got a lot of that from his dad because there are stories of his dad in Winnipeg doing things for people that never even came out. So uh, off the ice, phenomenal. And on the ice, he's just got the whole package. And, I mean, those hands are amazing. You know, the hands and then the patience. When he gets over the blue line, he has the ability to just slow it down, let it all get sorted out. And these little plays that he makes around the net are just amazing. You know, Pavel Bure, back 20 years ago, had back-to-back years for the Panthers, 58-59 goals. Jonathan Huberdeau had 115 points last year. But I don't even think it's close. Matthew Kachuk's had the best year any Panthers player has ever had at any position. When you look at everything that he's brought to the table and the big goals that he scored, and I'll tell you this, this franchise has never had a guy that when they win the game five in Boston and everybody's seen the video, they're putting the puck up. You know, we have the 16 holes for pucks to win the cup. And he says, remember this room because we're coming back for seven. I'm not sure anybody else in the room really believed it, but he had the guts to say it. And then he goes out and backs it up. He gets the two goals, Jeff, in game five. He backs it in game six. He backs it up himself. Yeah. So, you know, after that, I mean, you know this, after that Bruins series, Jim Montgomery talking about there was no answer for the Bennett line. Um, Bennett has become such an important player for this uh, for this Florida Panthers team. Uh, Nick Cousins kicks off the, the, the goal scoring in game one, and the Florida Panthers are, are off to the races. This is a really well-constructed line, and here I go using the word miserable again, but it's a tough one to play against. It's miserable uh, to play against that line. What is the secret sauce? Other than maybe the obvious, you have three really robust and highly skilled hockey players all on the same unit. Why does this thing work? What did this thing do to Boston where the uh, the, 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 uh, the leading candidate for the Jack Adams Trophy says we had no answer for these guys? Well, they're relentless uh, on defense. You, you know, they'll get in on the forecheck. And, you know, usually you have the line, right? It's either, you know, you're in on the forecheck or you can do some things offensively. Um, you'll get back defensively. This line has all of it. And remember, Nick Cousins was a third, fourth liner all year. It wasn't until the playoffs. And when Bennett came back after he missed game one against the Bruins, that Nick Cousins went over on that line. They were having, you know, Etulo Sterinen over there and, and, you know, mixing things up over there on that side. So uh, give Paul Maurice credit for realizing that Cousins does have the playmaking ability and hands to actually play with these two guys and as you said, I think you hit on the head. There are three miserable guys to play against. And Sam Bennett ups his game, yeah. you know, in the playoffs. If, if there's such a thing as a good penalty early in a playoff game, I guess there really never is. But Sam Bennett on the road in game one, going high like he did, and he took that penalty in the opening minutes. That was kind of like, okay, we knocked off the big bad Bruins. We're going to keep playing this way against you guys. You may want to open it up, and we may, you know, have a 5-4 game, but we're still bringing the same meat. And uh, I thought that was a big factor in that game also. So they're, you know, that, that line just has it all. If they get the puck down low, they're absolutely brutal to deal with, and then they have the skill to score. You know, um, I, I want to ask you about Paul Maurice. You just referenced him there a couple of seconds ago. And, you know, one of my favorite moments with uh, Maurice when he was in Toronto, uh, Leafs were going through a miserable time, and post-game, 
um, in front of the media, Paul essentially said, look, everybody needs to calm down. Everybody needs to have some chamomile tea and just chill out. And then the next day on all the seats in the media room, there was a bag of chamomile tea for all the, uh, all the, all the assembled media. Little touches like that uh, by Paul Maurice, you know, when he you know, uh, read the riot act to the team in Toronto during the regular season, up and down the bench afterwards. You know, not, did he, not only did he own it, but he referenced his father in the explanation as well and dragged dad into this one too. Like there's so many like, little sort of... You know, master strokes here by by Paul Maurice, and he really is. Uh, you know, I say this as a member of the media too. He really is a gift uh, in that way. Um, your thoughts on Paul Maurice as the head coach of this Panther squad? Well, it's been a fascinating year because you know he comes in. You're not getting 122 points again. Um, they lost some guys due to cap. You know, they played games this year, especially in the first half of the season, shorthanded, literally because they didn't have any cap money. You couldn't even call someone up, and all the while. He's trying to teach them and get them to play a system that's a lot harder to play than the way they did the year before and the year before that when they scored the most goals in the league in, you know, in 25 years. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of middling along, and um, you know, he, he was okay with it, you know, saying, hey, we got the injuries. You know, Barkov was out. All these guys were out of the lineup, and that's the reason why. Didn't take well with the fans. But in late December – they lost the game 4 nothing in Carolina and got dominated. It's the first time I saw Paul Maurice literally get angry. Jeff, they were back-to-back games, and he skated them. They practiced yeah. on the third day. And since then, that compete level went up. But then you had the hiccup in March where you lost the four in a row, and here in Toronto, he just let him have it. You know, I've asked him. He doesn't want to take credit for it, but you have to think that that had something to do with it, and they end up and go and win that game. And what this is showing and the series against Boston is showing that is that what he's been trying to preach the last eight months since training camp, he wasn't lying. Mm -hmm. Like you've got to be harder to play against. You've got to be tougher to play against. You got to grasp the grind of playoff hockey. And I think the team now actually realizes it because without all of that, there's no way they take out the Bruins. So, Mm -hmm. He's really done a terrific job, and um, you know it appears like he's played this goaltender situation perfectly in the playoffs, going with Lyon as long as he should have, and then yep. putting Bobrovsky in there at the right time. You know, let me um, let me pick up on on something you said there about about Paul Maurice, and I was talking to someone yesterday who was bringing up that that same incident with Paul Maurice barking at the bench and this like like nonstop, and you've seen this. Like, Goldie, you've seen this plenty of times. Normally when a coach goes banana sandwich behind the bench, a lot of players will take that opportunity and, oh, I've got to tie my skates or, oh, look away, you know, do anything to, you know, avoid eye contact with the coach at that moment. I can't remember who I was talking to. I remember yesterday or the day before, brought up a really good point. If you watch, if you watch the bench at that point, Matthew Kachuk has his eyes locked on the coach. He's not looking away. He's not doing the phony, I'm going to tie my skates here, not reaching for a while, nothing like that. His eyes are locked on Paul Maurice and is taking all of it. Like, and I can't, I know I keep making this all about his dad. I can't help but thinking that is indicative of a second generation player. That's what you do when your coach is having a bark at you. You turn and you respect them and you look at them. You don't look away. You don't tie your skates. You don't look distracted. You sit there, look at your coach, 
and take it. To me, it's that great moment within a moment. You know what I'm getting at, Goldie? A hundred percent. And I noticed that when it happened, he was leaning over the boards. And it's almost like, and you know, we're not inside his head, but the way he was looking at Maurice, and he was the only one. Everybody else was staring straight ahead. You know, Maurice is behind him on the bench. And Kachuk was almost looking at him like, okay, it's about time. Yeah, let us all have it. But he's okay with it, a hundred percent. So I thought that was uh, that was an amazing moment, and anybody just will go look at the video, and it is very noticeable. He's staring right at him during the tirade. Yeah, it really is. Listen, uh, we're heavy on time. Uh, always a delight to, to catch up with you. Uh, tonight should be another great one. This Panthers team is, listen, just flat out so much fun to watch here. Great speed, great skill, great snarl, all of it, uh, and a great goaltender and a great play-by-play voice. Steve, always, always <laughs> great catching up. You be well. You saved the best for last. I love it. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. <laughs> there he is, the great Steve Goldstein. is a play, The Panthers play-by-play voice uh, stops by the program today. It is game two uh, tonight, and you can watch this one starting at 7 o'clock Eastern. Well, really, the pregame show gets underway at 6.30 with your host, Ron McLean, Hockey Central. Uh, the puck will drop just after 7 o'clock on CBC and Sportsnet. Uh, and then at 9.30, um, Seattle Kraken and the Dallas Stars game two there. Cracking up one game to love. CBC and Sportsnet is your distribution. Uh, 9.30, this thing all gets underway. A couple of big game twos. Um, so on a day like this, a couple of things. One, very much looking forward to another night of playoff hockey uh, for someone who, you know, Ken Dryden used to always say, you know, sports is the best when you're, I think he said 12 and maybe 13 years old. Um, I had a lot of fond memories of Peter Klima, who, if you uh, missed the news, passed away at the age of 58. Uh, I know that, you know, he was a babysitting project for some of his coaches, had his demons, had his challenges um, off the ice. Gave us some great highlights. The biggest one, of course, 1990, Game 1, Triple OT, the longest OT in a Stanley Cup final. Uh, That would have been the big one for Peter Klima. Bounced around a lot of teams. Um, wasn't just Detroit, wasn't just Edmonton, but we think mostly about him playing there. He was fast, he was good, he was skilled, he had his issues, certainly. Uh, lost him today at the age of 58. Um, thoughts and, and wishes to the uh, to the Klima family. I want to thank everybody who uh, participated in the show today. Uh, our crew, Matt Marchese, Lance Kennedy, and Jen Rolnick. Thanks to Harner Ryan Singh, Elliot Friedman, and you just heard from Goldie, the great Steve Goldstein, play-by-play voice of the Florida Panthers. Enjoy the games tonight. We're back in 22 hours.